We turn again now to the reading of God's Word, and you can see in your bulletin that we're turning to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. This week is the third and final week in our little three-part sermon mini-series. We've been looking lately at some of the I have come statements of Jesus, the purpose statements of Jesus. There are several of them in John's Gospel, statements in which he said something like, for this purpose I have come into the world. Toward this end, my whole life has been directed in the world. The first one that we looked at, fittingly, on December the 25th, was from John 18, where he says to Pilate, of all people, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. So there, he signals the fact that he'd come into the world to be a prophet, to bear witness to the truth. And then last week, what we saw in John chapter 12 is that he'd also come to be a priest. That was part of his mission too. One who would make sacrifice, in his case, making the sacrifice of himself. Remember what he said to his disciples in John 12. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. And so we reflected last Sunday on what that hour was. It was the hour of his death. We reflected last Sunday on the kind of hour his death would be, an hour of atonement and obedience and agony, an hour of judgment and victory and glory. So that's some of the ground that we've covered over the past two Sundays. This week, one more of these I have come statements, and this one's in John 6. So I'm going to read for us a good bit of this chapter, beginning at uh, verse 22 down to verse 59. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there. And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses 
who gave you the bread from heaven. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your word, grateful for the words of the Apostle John recording this remarkable moment for us. We pray that you give us ears to hear now, for we would hear your voice and go forth in faith and obedience, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Last week when we were exploring the same theme, the theme of the Son of God 
coming into the world, I said it's a little bit like a king visiting a slum. Whenever a king visits a slum, well, that's unusual. That's provocative. That provokes the natural question, what are you doing here? Why on earth would you stoop down like this? Why on earth would you go out of your way to visit a place like this where it would seem you have no business being? What's royalty like you doing in a place like this? What are you doing here? Well, imagine this twist. Imagine that king answers that question by saying, well, if you want to know the kind of king I am, then you need to understand that I'm a king who serves another. And that's a twist, isn't it? Especially if we're imagining this scenario in the first century. Not what you're expecting to hear. Believe it or not, I'm a king who serves another. And if you want to know what I'm doing here, the answer is, I was sent here by that other. And because I was sent here by that other, well, then I'm here to carry out what that other sent me to do. And I will not swerve from it. Not now. Not ever. So not the kind of king that usually comes to mind, a king who can say something like that. I was sent by another. I'm here to follow through on a mission I was given And that's the kind of king that we have in King Jesus. And it comes out here in the middle of John chapter 6. So let's take a look. Just to get our bearings here in John 6. At this point, at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus has fed the 5,000. With five loaves of bread and two fish. And at that point, the subject of conversation, even debate, becomes bread. And eventually, Jesus turns even that subject to himself. One of these stunning I am statements. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So he makes that claim about himself. But then as soon as he says that, he says this about the crowd, the folks who are listening to him. Verse 36, He said, I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. You do not believe. This takes us back to something we noticed a few weeks ago, which is that the ministry of the Son of God coming into the world is a ministry that divides. It divides the world between those who believe in him and those who don't. Well, the question becomes, what do we make of the fact that some people believe in him and some don't? How do we account for that? Not only that, but what are we supposed to think about the people who have come to believe in him? And what's in store for them? Well, Jesus answers those questions in the next verse, verse 37. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And then he wants to make it clear, this is why I came. So here in verse 38 is where we have our jewel this morning, our 
our purpose statement. Verse 38, he says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Listen to it again. I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now think about that. There's a sense in which the Father's will was Jesus' will too. They were on the same page. They had the same purpose. But the point is, it was that because he made it that. The Father's will was Jesus' will because Jesus embraced it and made it his own. The point is, Jesus wasn't some kind of isolated actor. Somebody who'd come into the world to carry out his own desires, cut off from all other considerations, all other persons. No. He'd come to carry out the very purpose that his Father had placed in his hands. I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Well, that provokes then the next natural question, which is, what's that will? You've come down from heaven on that mission to carry out the will of the one who sent you. Well, what is it? What's the mission? What's the purpose? And he says so. Look at verse 39 and 40. He says, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So there, Jesus sheds glorious light on what this will was that he'd come to carry out, what the purpose was, what the mission was. And there are three truths in there truths concerning our salvation that I really want to highlight today. And I'll tell you right now what they are. They are election, preservation, and resurrection. Election, preservation, resurrection. Behold the Father's will that the Son came down from heaven to carry out. Election, preservation, resurrection. So notice there's a kind of past, present, future pattern here. Election in eternity past, preservation in this present age, and resurrection in the end. So those three. First of all, election. The Son of God came down from heaven to carry out the Father's will. And that That will, that divine decree is itself rooted in eternity past, before time began. And it's clear in this passage that the Father's eternal will, his everlasting decree, is personal. And by that I mean it has to do with persons, human persons, and that's good to underline here because some of the language that Jesus uses here, considered by itself, it doesn't have a terribly personal ring. Because he says things like this, all that the Father gives me, all that the Father gives me, all that he has given me. Well, all what? 
Or he says, I will raise it up. I will raise it up on the last day. Well, what's the it? Sounds kind of impersonal. But then you notice that that somewhat impersonal language is filled in with very personal meaning by what Jesus says around those statements. Because he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. See, now it's personal. Or again, he says, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him, I will raise him up on the last day. He's not talking about things. He's talking about persons, human persons, sinners who come to Christ. Because throughout Jesus' statements here, you have this equivalence between all that the Father gives me and whoever, whoever comes to me. All that the Father has given me and everyone, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him. That's the same category, and that category is a group of people. That was Jesus' mission. It was personal. It's like the the coach who says, my mission isn't just just wins and and playoffs and championships. My mission is the members of this team who who are looking at me during practice and during a game, and I know them by name. For that matter, my mission is to keep in mind the fans, not just numbers of tickets sold, but the fans who are actually buying those tickets and coming and cheering us on. Or it's like the CEO who says, my mission isn't just products and profits. My mission is the people who work for me, and I know them by name. For that matter, the people who buy these products. Or it's like the teacher who says, my mission isn't just curriculum or test scores or lesson plans. My mission is the students who are looking back at me in that classroom, and I know them by name. I know I've I've mentioned this before. A few years back, I had the opportunity to do some teaching at a local Christian school. I got to teach church history for a period of about six months to nearly 70 high school juniors. And the first assignment I gave was an assignment I gave myself, which was to learn their names. And I studied the yearbook, and I studied... The list of the names of my students. And I went in, I think it was the next Monday, and I said, okay, pop quiz, groans. And I said, don't worry, the only one taking this quiz is me. And I went up and down every row, every aisle, and I said their names. And I got one wrong, and she'll probably never forgive me. And I wouldn't be surprised if any of those kids remember me all these years later, if the one thing they remember may not be what I taught them, it may be that I learned their names. Because there's something about that sense of purpose and mission that gets personal has a way of making it ring true and take deep root. The mission's personal. 
And that's true here of our Savior. It's the group of people who were chosen by the Father before time. Precisely to be those who would come to Christ and believe in him in time. They were chosen by the Father. And then what did the Father do? The Father took these ones that he'd chosen and he he gave them to the Son. As a gift, as a trust, as his people. And that's something that happened before time itself was created. As, As unfathomable and mysterious as that is for us even to contemplate. But listen to 2 Timothy 1 verse 9. It says this, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Before the ages began. So that when the Son came into the world and then lived his whole life in the world, it's as if he lived his whole life and went about his whole ministry with a scroll in his hand. An unseen scroll. And I guess it would have to be a big one. Because written on that scroll were all the names, every single name of every single person whom the Father had chosen and given to him as a gift, as a trust, as his people. And everything that Jesus did, he did for every single person whose name was written On that scroll. Everything that he did, including dying for them. All that the Father gives me, brothers and sisters, that's the election. In eternity past, now bearing fruit in time, which was the lifetime of our Savior. So that's the first. Election. Now, here's the second, preservation. And here's where we move from past to present. Preservation. What does Jesus say in verse 37? He says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I will never cast out. A few verses later, verse 39, he says this, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given Everyone who truly comes to Christ, Christ keeps as one who believes, as one who obeys, as one who presses on. Christ preserves the believer so that the believer perseveres in faith and hope and love. That's true of everyone who truly comes to Christ by faith. Jesus keeps him, keeps him safe. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus keeps that person safe from all trials in this world, and don't we know that? But he does keep the believers safe, and isn't this the main thing, from finally and fatally turning his back on the gospel, and from those enemies of his soul which would happily bring that about. No, Jesus will never cast the believer back out back into the death where Jesus found him. Jesus will never lose him by somehow failing him or forgetting about him. Jesus keeps the believer safe. We can even say that Jesus keeps the believer safe and satisfied. 
Because what does he say in verse 35? Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Oh, what kind of king we have in King Jesus. Not only does he fend off the enemies of our souls from destroying our souls, but also at the very same time, he spreads for us the most magnificent royal feast so that we're satisfied, so that we don't hunger, so that we don't thirst. And he's doing that right now. And he's going to keep doing it throughout our lives, throughout this age. Here again we see that the ministry of Jesus is an ongoing ministry. I mean, here we're we're turning to, to John 6 and learning these lessons. We're listening to something that Jesus said way back when. But the truth that he stated then was not confined to way back when. It's still true. He's still determined to do his Father's will. He's still determined. To guard those whom the Father gave to him. And now from on high, he does it by his ministry of word and spirit. These weeks we've been looking at at these statements in John where Jesus says something like, For this purpose I have come down, I have come down. And he puts it that way today, I have come down from heaven. Well, Jesus isn't down anymore the way he was then. He's still human, but he's not here, not down here. Where is he now? He's in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And though it's never quite recorded this way in Scripture, Jesus could just as truly say, now in heaven, he could say, for this purpose, I have come up. For this purpose, I have come back up from earth to heaven. For this purpose, I have been installed as king and given all authority in heaven and on earth. Not to do my own will, but the will of him who raised me, who exalted me. Because the same one who sent me down raised me up and has lifted me up to his right hand. And this is the will of him who raised me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Still the Father's purpose and the Son is still determined to bring it about. Jesus' ministry is an ongoing ministry and thank God that it is. Therein lies our preservation. He's doing it right now. Preservation. So election was the first, preservation was the second, here's the third of three Resurrection. And here's where we go from past to present to future. Resurrection at the end of the age. Again, look at verse 39. Jesus says, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up. Raise it up on the last day. And then the next verse, verse 40. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up. On the last day, Jesus is talking about resurrection, the resurrection of believers, the the reunion of believers, body and soul. Their bodies now glorious like we never knew them here. And that's worth underlining, too. 
the glory, the unprecedented glory of this raising that he's talking about. When Jesus says, I will raise him up, I mean, what naturally comes to mind for us is the image of someone lying down in death, and then Jesus brings that person back up in such a way that that person then rises up, even stands up with new life. I will raise him up from death to life. And that's a fitting image in its own way. But we just need to be clear. There's a whole lot more to resurrection than just getting back up. To be raised. To be raised in the way that Jesus is going to raise the believer at the end of the age. It isn't just being raised from lying down to standing up. It's, it's being raised from this old earthly age to that new everlasting age. It's to be exalted. Not just restored to what was, but exalted to that which has never been. Including being clothed with a glorious resurrection body. The promise of the New Testament is that we're even going to be clothed with our own bodies, now made glorious like the body that Jesus has now. That's what Paul says at the end of Philippians 3. He says, Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Jesus says, I will raise him up. Every last one. This is part of the Father's purpose as well. This is the very culmination of that purpose. This is the culmination of everything that we're canvassing here today. In eternity past, the Father chose his own. Chose them and then handed them to the Son as a gift, as a trust. It's as if he handed him that scroll with every name written on it. And he did so with this end in view. Resurrection glory in the end. As it says in Isaiah 46, I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning. Isaiah 46. It's as if the father handed the son that scroll and said to him, these are my chosen ones. I'm entrusting them to you. I want every single one of them in the end to be with us in our glory forever. I want every single one of them to be raised up. And the son said, Father, I'll do it. Every single one whom you've given to me, I'll raise him up. I mean, just imagine the alternative. The, imagine the unimaginable alternative. The dust settling on the last day. And just one of the elect missing. If that that comes to pass, the Father's purpose has been thwarted and the Son of God has failed. If just one of them is missing. Every once in a while you hear about the school field trip. Maybe you've had some experience with this personally as a parent. Teacher 
takes a group of students off on a field trip. And in spite of the teacher's best efforts to keep track of every one of them, at some point, frighteningly, one of the kids manages to wander off. And that makes for some, for some frantic moments. And maybe even word gets back to the parents, even if there's a happy ending and the, and the kid is, is regained. Still, some angry questions and recriminations follow. How did this happen? How could you let this happen? How could you lose one? How could you lose one? Wasn't it, if anything, your most important mission to keep them? Can you imagine the Father, our Heavenly Father, having to say that to the Son when the dust settles on that last day? How did this happen? How could you let this happen? How could you lose one? But that's just it. It is the unimaginable scenario because it simply cannot be. If you know God, God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you, you can't really imagine it because it will never be. The Son will raise up every, every, every single one whom the Father gave him. A little bit later in our service, we're going to sing that hymn, How Vast the Benefits Divine. And it captures this. We're going to sing, This is thy will, that in thy love we ever should abide, that earth and hell should not prevail to turn thy word aside. Not one of all the chosen race, but shall to heaven attain. Partake on earth the purposed grace, and then with Jesus reign. What's so great about that verse that we're going to sing in a little bit is that it actually ties together all three of our points today. Election, because we sing, this is thy will. And preservation, that in thy love we ever should abide. And resurrection, not one of them lost. Not one of all the chosen race, but shall to heaven attain the destiny of resurrection. I will raise him up. So, brothers and sisters, all three of those are to be found in the words of Jesus today. Let me wrap up with a few words of encouragement for us. How can we take these things, bring them to bear? How can our lives be shaped by these things? And they should be. First of all, this. The truths, the the doctrines that we've surveyed here. Election, preservation, resurrection. Covering the sweep of eternity and time. From past to future. Take that personally, Christian. There is no moment in history, even before history, no moment now in your own life that is somehow outside the scope of your Father's loving and wise purposes. Not one moment, no matter how painful or perplexing, no matter how much it may seem to you that everything is just spinning out of control, There there are plenty of moments when we forget God's purposes 
Or we remember them, but then we fail them. But Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they never forget. They never fail. They never lose control. Not one moment in the grand sweep of history, in the course of your own life. So there's that, first of all. Here's a second lesson, a second word of encouragement for you. We can say this as well about our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They never bicker. They never have a falling out. There's no moment when the Father has one purpose, but the Son has another that that contradicts it, that goes against it. So that the Holy Spirit is forced to come in and play the role of some kind of peacemaker within the Trinity. No, theirs is a shared purpose. Which means that, Christian, you're never in the position of having to pick one. Or having to figure out who it is within the Trinity who's really on your side. So we can admit the doctrine of the Trinity stretches our minds and even our vocabulary to express it. That's certainly true. But don't let that cause you to shrink back from the doctrine of the Trinity. Or, or to bail out on it as if it were no, of no practical use. There's something beautiful in that doctrine. Something comforting here that no other religion in the world has, which is one God, and at the same time, that one God is a fellowship of intimate communion and shared purpose and unswerving commitment and unshakable confidence. Christian, behold your God. And as far as preservation is concerned, take that personally as well. Christian, Jesus is never going to kick you out, cast you out, because he suddenly changed his mind. Sinners do that sort of thing. Jesus never will. He's never going to lose you because he was careless and lost track of you. Sinners do that. Jesus never will. He'll keep you. You're going to make it. When it comes to earthly journeys and challenges, sometimes we don't make it. I remember a few years ago, I set out from our house on a bike ride. And I had charted out this course, riding um, some roads in Clifton that I thought would be interesting and perhaps picturesque. And my goal was to make it to Burke Lake Park. Friends, I didn't make it. It's a funny thing, charting out a bike ride on your phone. It doesn't really give you a sense of topography. (laughs) And those hills, and those twists and turns. And I finally called Christy and said, Christy, not going to make it. And she had to come get me. Lately, I've been getting into running again. And it's lovely that the, the runs are getting longer again. More miles. But there is that kind of gulp, deep breath moment before I set out, knowing how many miles I want to run, knowing where it is that I'm hoping I'll end up within a reasonable period of time. Freely admitting that I'm not entirely sure if I'm going to make it. 
And there can be something unsettling about that. About these earthly journeys and challenges. And we all know some of them are more serious and more profound than a bike ride or a run. Am I going to make it? I don't know. Which is why there is something so wonderfully comforting and then energizing about this, the most important of all journeys to the celestial city. If you're a believer, you're going to make it. You're going to make it. Because Jesus is going to make sure that you do. Preservation. And then finally this. Resurrection. Christian, Jesus is going to raise you up. Clothe you with a body on that last day. Your own body, but your body like you've never known it. Certainly not like we're experiencing them now. And he's going to welcome you into a world, a new world. He'll raise you up never to go back down again. Back down into sin and misery and death ever again. That's what he's going to do for you on that last day. And that becomes the hope, the renewed hope of this day, this Lord's Day. Here in January of 2023. He came down for this purpose. And now he's been raised up. Raised up for the same purpose. And because he was, Christian, one day you will be too. And amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we bow before you and rejoice in you. That you were committed to your Father's will. He gave you his own. And even now you keep them, you keep us. And one day you will raise us. And not one shall be lost. We do pray that you would encourage us today with these things. Grant us to fix our eyes on you again. And we ask it for your glory and for our good. Amen.